You ever started into something and you have the sinking feeling that it started out well and now it's all going terribly wrong? Sometimes it's about something relatively minor, like something you forgot to do for the day. You didn't charge your phone. You didn't, uh, you forgot and left the lights on in your car, something comparatively minor like that. Sometimes it's about something far more serious. You start to ask questions like, did I make the right decision about some major thing in life, something that is... Um, uh, really has significant financial impact, like uh, buying a, a house, something that has uh, relational impact, like marrying a particular person, something that has spiritual impact, like I meant to witness to this person and now they've moved away or they've died or something like that and I don't have that opportunity anymore. The passage that we're going to look at this morning, you have this sense that it starts out one way and ends in a way that's somewhat unexpected, at least from the perspective of some of the characters that we see. Not so much in the first few verses, but particularly when we get to this confrontation between Saul and Elymas. As we look at this passage, I think it's helpful for us to consider a little bit of the background. We looked at some of it uh, last Sunday night, but let me just review it for us. Uh, we're talking about the church at Antioch. And so let me read uh, the end of chapter 11, because that will make clear which church we're talking about. It says, So then those who are scattered because of the persecution, chapter 11, verse 19, that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Well, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived to witness the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And then a verse that we really didn't cover in the Sunday morning when we looked at Peter's account, sort of a, not a parenthesis, but a, a shift in focus from chapter 12, verse 1, down to chapter 12, verse 24. But then at the end of chapter 12, we have this verse. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. That is the background to the story that we're going to look at this morning to see what God is doing in this church at Antioch. So we note that it was the result of people who were scattered being involved in preaching the gospel, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And so this has connections back to chapter 7 and 8 with the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that broke out with Saul meant that all of these people were scattered some went south, some went east, some went west. These went north into the Syrian 
uh, region, to the far to the north of Jerusalem, and they are preaching the gospel. And as a result of their preaching of the gospel, many people are brought to be a part of that church. One of the key figures in connection with this church who first goes to investigate what's going on and then stays on and sees further ministry opportunities is Barnabas. Barnabas, who was the one who first met Saul, who was the one who instituted, instigated or started this persecution against the church after Stephen's death. Barnabas, who is now going to go and get Saul from Tarsus, where he has been ministering for a time after his conversion, brings him to Antioch. Prophets come from Jerusalem to Antioch, predicting this famine. Barnabas and Saul take a gift from the church at Antioch down to the church of Jerusalem for the relief of the poor, which Paul will later mirror in the contribution that's collected from churches in Macedonia and in what is now Turkey and bring it to the church later. And now in verse 1, we have at Antioch prophets, potentially those who came and brought the message of the famine, perhaps others as well. We have Barnabas. We have Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, both of whom quite likely were part of those who, in verse 20 of chapter 11, were those who first started taking the gospel to the Greeks. And so we see how all, these, all of these details fit together. Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which in and of itself is a fascinating connection, because we have the Herod, who put, sought to put Christ to death, and in fact succeeded in doing so, someone who is a close associate of his, now is a part of this church, seeming in a role of leadership, and leading them into the next step that God has for them. And so we see the power of the gospel to transform him, to transform Saul, who had been the one persecuting the church, and now they're all in this one place at the church of Antioch, and they are ready to receive God's word, God's direction. Just a quick note about prophets. Sometimes we think of prophets as being an Old Testament sort of idea. But clearly there was a gift of prophecy in the New Testament. This man Agabus that we see at the end of chapter 11 and probably summarized in the beginning of chapter 13 and verse 1, we'll see later in the book of Acts, he's the one who tells Saul, now called Paul, if you go down to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound in chains. He has daughters who are prophetesses. There are other references to prophets in the book of Acts, not a, not a large number, but some of them. And so here are people who are speaking God's word, because in the Old Testament, what did prophets do? They reminded people of truth that God had already spoken, and they also proclaimed God's truth about what was going to happen. Those were their two primary functions. And this is something that was going on in the early days of the church, before the word of God was completed, in this sort of transitional period, and so we see them all here waiting for the word of the Lord. It's interesting to me the context in which this word of the Lord comes. Verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so we might think the order would be different. God says, I want you to do this. Then they start praying and fasting, ministering to God in that way. But it's in the context of them doing the things that the church was supposed to do, or at least the things that had been their custom, particularly with regard to fasting, that they see 
God uh, taking them to the next step of what he wants the church to be doing. Just a quick note about fasting. Is it mandatory for Christians in the New Testament era? No. Should we as Christians consider whether it is appropriate for us to do fasting in connection with times of prayer? Yes. And so, uh, it was a required thing for Jewish converts, and yet, these men were not necessarily Jew all from a Jewish background, although some of them certainly were. But it is something that shows a sign of dedication and seriousness and focus on what God would like someone to do. Now, the Pharisees clearly did it wrong. How did they do it? They said, they, they, they marched about, they, they dressed in a certain way. I am fasting, and I want you to notice that I am fasting. Jesus said, if you're going to fast, don't fast in that way. Fasting being withholding of food or potentially water for a period of time. Now, Jesus himself was out in the wilderness for 40 days fasting, and that's the context in which the uh, devil came and tempted him, according to Matthew 4. His was a unique experience. I don't think that there is any biblical mandate for 40 uh, days in the wilderness for us. Most likely, it had a symbolic connection to the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and the testing that they went through, and another sign in which Christ perfectly lived out all of the things that Adam and the rest of God's people didn't live up to. But it is an opportunity for giving up something in order to devote yourself to prayer, not so other people notice you, but rather to show a willingness to focus on that thing above all other things. How does that apply to something like the practice of Lent in certain churches? Or how does that apply to the, the practice of... The, the modern practice actually mirrors that of the Pharisees in some respects. Somebody says, I'm going to take a fast from junk food. I'm going to take a fast from Facebook on the computer. I'm going to take a fast from all these other sorts of things. But how do they do it? They announce it. I am taking a fast. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. If you feel like something is a distraction in your spiritual life and you need to set it aside for a time, whether that be food, whether that be technology, whether that be whatever else, do it. But don't trumpet it about, because the point is not about other people being aware of it. The point is about you and God and focusing on your relationship with God. That's the context in which the Holy Spirit speaks to them. They were ministering to the Lord. They were fasting they were looking for God to work. God says, here's what I want you to do. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And it's interesting as well because Barnabas and Saul were in a sense already set apart to that work. They were already doing it. It's not as though they hadn't been preaching the gospel. It's not as though they hadn't been taking the gospel to churches. But this is sort of a turning point in the book of Acts in which we see the first of these missionary journeys that Paul is going to go on. We see this uh, outpouring of, of the gospel from the church at Antioch to the known world. And the church at Jerusalem still certainly has a key role, certainly in Acts chapter 15, but we see the 
responsibility for the proclamation of the gospel sort of being passed off from the church at Jerusalem, Peter and the rest of the apostles there to Paul and the church at Antioch becoming a key uh, central focus of the rest of the book of Acts. And so we see sort of this turning point in the book of Acts. And so God said, set them apart for this work. Paul had been called to it earlier. Barnabas had clearly been doing it for a number of years. This was going to be a recognition of the church of the role that God had for them. Verse 3 says, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, some people have said this is not an ordination because Barnabas and Saul were more important than the people at the church at Antioch. And when I read that in one of the commentaries I was looking at, it gave me pause. I was sort of thinking about that. There's not really a sense in which Barnabas and Saul were more important than anyone in the church at Antioch. Did they have a special and unique role? Yes. Was Paul designated as the apostle to the Gentiles? Yes. Did that give him a measure of authority, perhaps exceeding some of the others in that church? Yes. But on the other hand, at another level, they were simply followers of Christ sent out by the church. And so I think we do see a pattern here, not only for what took place there, but also for what takes place in connection with our own support of missionaries, which is that missionaries aren't this sort of free-floating entity that is off on their own. They're those who are sent out from a specific church for a specific task. Does God say, this person is called to this work, and so I want you to send them out from Ambassador Baptist Church? No. So how does someone know if they are sent by God along these lines? Sometimes it's been a very... Um, it's been a very interesting description of how this takes place because a lot of Baptist churches tend to be very opposed to the idea of the exercise of charismatic gifts, but then we talk about the leading of God in sort of a vague and mystical way. So how do you know what God wants you to do? I think from this passage, it's in the context of when you're doing the things God has already told you to do, you have more clarity on what it is that you need to do next. Because they're already doing things that are pleasing to God, ministering to the Lord and fasting, and then the message comes from the Holy Spirit. I think we have teaching in other parts of the New Testament on the call of an elder, a pastor in a church, in terms of a desire of that person that God puts in their heart, a qualification for those responsibilities in terms of are they living a holy life, a good example, all of those sorts of things, showing some ability in the things that they're supposed to do in the church. And then thirdly, we see that there is a recognition by the church in a variety of passages that elders are appointed by the churches. And so there's, I think, three parts to the call of a pastor. And I think potentially there is connection between that and the call of a missionary, which is a desire, a qualification, and a commissioning by the church. Now, we don't have to use the word ordination. It's not found in the Bible per se. But I think there is a sense of commissioning of a church sending someone out, appointing someone to a particular task. Does it have to be a, 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 a hugely formal thing? No. When you all asked me to be your pastor last summer, it was a fairly straightforward thing. You said, we've 
voted to call you, I came out, and, and, and you recognize me as your pastor, and that's the job that I've been doing. There's parallels between that and what we see in this passage. And so, to sort of summarize all these things, when they fast and prayed and laid their hands on them, it did not give them some sort of a uh, magical power. It did not make them different people than they were before. It was simply an opportunity for the church to recognize these men are going for a specific task, and we're recognizing it, and we're seeing it as from God, and they're going to go out. Someone says, I want to be a pastor, and I'm qualified, and a church doesn't call him to do that. He can't just do it on his own. There has to be that element of the church recognizing and commissioning him. If someone says, I want to be a missionary, and no one wants to take him on as a missionary and send him out from their church, that person should not be a missionary in light of this passion, the pattern, I think, in this passage. The beginning of verse 4 is also very interesting to me. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. That first phrase, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Because verse 3 says, the church sent them out. And verse 4 says, the Holy Spirit sent them out. So which was it? It was both. To the extent that they were obeying God's word, and God had said, send them out, then both the church recognized and sent them out, and the Holy Spirit also sent them out to fulfill the task that he had appointed for them. The geographical names that we see here, uh, Seleucia and down to Cyprus, essentially what's happening is from your perspective, you have the Mediterranean Sea. They were at Antioch. They go from Antioch uh, east to the seaport of Seleucia. They sail from there to the island of Cyprus, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. They're going to land in verse 5 at Salamis, which is on the western edge of Cyprus. And then they're going to go through the island. It says they proclaim the word in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John as their helper. Who's John? John is the one that we saw at the end of verse 25. John, who was also called Mark. He's incidentally the son of the woman who owns the house that everyone is praying in when Peter is delivered. We see this in chapter 12 and verse 12. Uh, they were at the house of Mary, mother of John, called Mark. And so we see these connections between all of these characters. Uh, he's going to, interestingly enough, be the occasion of the conflict between Barnabas and Saul uh, here in the next few chapters because he's going to leave them, whether because he was afraid, whether because he was uncertain about what he was supposed to be doing. We'll get to that later on, but, but that's who John Mark is. But he, right now, he's assisting Barnabas and Saul in their work. This sets the pattern of what we're going to see in terms of these missionary journeys. Paul's pattern, and uh, Barnabas's as well initially, is they go, they preach in the synagogues, and then after they preach in the synagogues, generally there's opposition of some kind that excludes them from the synagogues, and then they take the gospel to the Gentiles. So they start out in the synagogues, verse uh, 5. And then now in verse 6, when they go through the whole island as far as Paphos, they find a magician, a Jewish false prophet, who na whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, is it as clearly defined as we'll see in some other passages? No, but we're going to see this pattern over and over again. 
uh, I was studying this passage with uh, some eighth graders at the Christian school over at First of Troy, and they said, man, the, the Jews really didn't like Paul because we would just, time after time, we would just see Paul preaches, the Jews try to kick him out, beat him, kill him, whatever, and then he takes the gospel of the Gentiles, and eventually the opposition becomes so great he ends up leaving. We're just going to see this pattern over and over again. In this case, it's not so much a group of Jews as it is one specific individual. It's this Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. And we say, why Bar-Jesus? It's not Bar like where someone goes to get alcoholic drinks. It's not Bar as in like a legal Bar. It's Bar as in son of. Whether this was a title that he took to himself or whether this just happened to be his name, it's fascinating in light of what we'll see in the rest of the passage. Because here's someone who has the name Son of Jesus, whom Paul is very going to sh shortly going to say, you have no connection with him at all. But we'll see that in just a moment. Why is it significant that he's a Jewish false prophet? It's significant that he's a Jewish false prophet because if you think about the Old Testament, the law was very clear. If you were a genuine prophet, your words would come true. If you were a genuine prophet, you were sent by God. If you didn't meet those qualifications, the Jewish people were supposed to stone you. And so it's fascinating to me that we have here a man who is described as a Jewish false prophet because it either means that the people weren't doing their job or that he had so deceived them that uh, they just sort of accepted his words as truth. And it's also interesting, as we'll see in verse 7, he's with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So here's a Jewish false prophet serving in some capacity, maybe not an advisor, but at least a close connection with a Roman official. And so again, we have this strange connection between Jews who don't believe in Jesus or who oppose the gospel and Romans... Just like we saw earlier in the book of Acts, Herod and Pontius Pilate opposed to Jesus. Not as strong an opposition because Sergius Paulus seems to genuinely be converted by the end of the passage. But again, we just keep seeing these themes being repeated. And I don't want us to miss those things. This man, the man being Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So I think that the reason that this false prophet is tolerated is because people genuinely think that his message is from God. And in light of that, Sergius Paulus has clearly had some connection with truth about God and wants to hear more things about God from Barnabas and Saul, according to verse 7. Verse 8 says, But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them. Now, wait a second. I thought his name was Bar-Jesus. Why is he referred to as Elemis? What does Elemis mean? The short answer is, there's a lot of speculation and no definitive answer, but the consensus seems to be that it has something of this idea of a wise man or one who sees the future, which would fit with this idea of him being a Jewish false prophet. Here's someone who has said, I can tell you what's going to happen next. I can tell you what's going to be taking place later on. I can tell you what God says is taking place. Verse 1 of Acts 13, genuine prophets sent by God. 
as we saw at the end of Acts 11. Verse 8, false prophet, claims to be wise, claims to be a seer of the future, opposing the gospel. And what is he trying to do? He seeks to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so for a time he's been able to deceive potentially the proconsul and also the people as to his specific goals. But now, here is the truth of the gospel and here is his opposition and they've, become, they've been set in conflict against each other. Again, this has, has echoes of things that have taken place earlier in the book of Acts. Think about what happened with Gamaliel. What does he advise the council? Be careful so that you not be fi found fighting against God. What did Herod do in last week's passage? He was fighting against God. He was opposing the church. What did Saul himself experience? That he was fighting against God. Jesus said, as Paul tells the story later in the book of Acts, it's hard for you to kick against the goads of the direction that I'm trying to send you. And so we have this theme coming up over and over again in Acts. People are fighting against God. Which one is going to win? God's going to win. Their opposition, even though it may seem to succeed at first, will not ultimately succeed. What's Saul's response? But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. Why is Saul now called Paul? Uh, some of the historical sources or, or so forth would say that it was common for Jewish people in Gentile context to have a secondary name that was a Roman name or a Latin name, and that's why he was called that. Um, we do see him referred as this throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And so perhaps Luke highlights this here in connection with his transition away from being focused on taking the gospel, the Jews and Gentiles alike, to going to a more secular context and taking the gospel as the apostle to the Gentiles. But we're going to see him called Paul for the rest of the book. He's the one who's speaking to Elymas. It says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, false prophet filled with the Holy Spirit. Someone who is currently opposed to God. Someone who had been opposed to God. What's going to be the result of this confrontation? Verse 10. And said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud. Okay? What's Paul's opinion of Elymas? Not very high at the moment, right? He's calling the sin of Elymas what it is. Here's someone who is a false prophet who has been praying... Not praying as to God, but praying like a lion on a, on a gazelle or something like that. He's been praying on the people, on this uh, Roman official. And then he describes him further. He says, you son of the devil. What is this parallel? Jesus' words to the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil because there is no truth in you. Paul's saying the exact same things that are consistent with the message of Scripture. If you seek to lead the people away from God, if you teach God's word falsely, you are a false prophet, you are a son of the devil, you are opposed to God, God will not tolerate it. And, what, and then he says, just in case it's still not clear, you enemy of all righteousness. So what should our opinion of Elemis be at this point? He stands in danger of God's judgment unless he repents. 
And the sign of that judgment is going to come with what Paul says next in verse 11. But here's Paul's question for him. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And this sort of brings in all of these ideas from the Old Testament about there being, about there being two ways. A way that leads to life, a way that leads to destruction, a straight way, a crooked way. Jesus' words about the broad path versus the narrow and the, the right way to God. And Paul is saying, are you going to quit confusing the path for these people? Are you going to quit obscuring it for them? Verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. This is fascinatingly ironic coming from the mouth of Paul. Who was blind and did not see the sun for a time? Because of his opposition to God's word. But what was the difference between Paul and Elemis, at least as far as what we see revealed in the story, Paul repented, Elemis, as far as we can tell, did not. It's sort of left open-ended, like the story of Simon the Magician, but it appears that Elemis did not repent. But as a sign to the people, and as a sign to him, the one whose name is basically Seer is blind. The one who says, I know the future, can't even walk in a straight line because he can't see what's in front of him. And God's hand of judgment is clear against those who would oppose his word. And yet over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we're going to see this opposition of the Jewish people and the Jewish religious leaders to the truth of God. And they are blinded. And I think that this is the point that Paul makes in the book of Romans. If only they would see... God has taken the gospel of the Gentiles to stir them up to jealousy, to take their blindness away from them, but right now they just don't see, and my heart breaks for them. That's the point that Paul makes in the book of Romans. But here in this case, Saul opposes this false prophet, strikes him with blindness by God's power, verse 11, and immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. A visible picture of the spiritual reality, which is that he sought to lead other people, but himself had no truth with which to lead them, and himself was spiritually blind, as well as, for a time, physically blind. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Wait a minute. Wasn't he amazed at the, the judgment of God on Elvis? No, it says he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. The thing that brought Sergius Paulus to understanding the truth was God's Word. The sign that accompanied it, I think, was proof that God's Word was true, but the thing that transformed his life was God's Word. This is an important reminder for us because we get the idea, like in Jesus' story about the rich man and Lazarus, that if we just had a more amazing and striking thing to show people, they would be converted. But the thing that converts people is the teaching of the Lord. So, just as a side application, do you trust in the power of God's Word? Connected with that, do you trust in the power of God Himself to overcome opposition to His Word? And that's where the hang-up comes for a lot of us when it comes to presenting the Gospel, we're not convinced that God's work can do it on its own. We've got to sort of like package it the right way. And we're not convinced that God will actually save people. 
because their opposition is greater in some way than God himself. We would never say that, but that's sort of the way we act sometimes. Now, should we be clueless about the way we present God's word? No, there's, a, there's certainly a degree to which skill and thought and preparation should go into how we present God's word. But God's word is the thing that has the power, not our skill and our preparation and our personality and all of those sorts of things. And the thing that will give us success in the mission, Matthew 28 says, all authority has been given to Christ, and we have that authority delegated to us in the church, and so that's what stands behind us as we take God's word. A further application I think that's important for us to ask ourselves is, am I someone who is opposed to God in some way, or am I someone who is submitted to God? And that's what I tried to capture in the title that I put in the, in the bulletin about this passage, but I understand it may not have been as clear as it could be because I said, is God's hand on you or are you against you? Because it actually uses the word God's hand is on you about Elemis, but in the sense of judgment. God's hand was on him to suppress his efforts versus the laying on of hands of those who are sent out by God. But, but which category do you find yourself in this morning? Are you seeking to accomplish God's work, God's purpose, in the same way that Barnabas and Saul paid attention to the leading of the Lord through a direct revelation, in the sense that we pay attention to God's direction through His Word? Are you seeking to be led by God's Word? Or... Are you opposing God's word? Because if you oppose God's word, we stand in danger of God's judgment. If we live according to God's word, God's power stands behind us. The gospel can convert people. It can transform our lives. And nothing can ultimately thwart it. So where do you stand this morning? I think that's one of the key questions we have to answer from this passage. And do we see our church as a place where this mission that starts in verses 1 through 3 continues even today. Do we see it as a possibility that someone could be sent out from our church as a missionary commissioned to take the gospel elsewhere in the world? And at the very least, do we continue to be committed to support those who are faithfully doing this task? As we talked about in the Sunday School Hour, what is the mission of the church? It's not societal transformation. It's not being known as a nice guy at work. Is it wrong to do things that are for the good of society? No. Should we try to be nice people at work to the extent that that reflects godliness? Yes. Well, that's not enough, and that's not the focus of our role as Christians. As Christians, as a church, we take the truth of the gospel because it transformed lives just like it did with Sergius Paulus in this passage today. Do we see our church as still connected with that mission today? Is God's hand on us, being commissioned by God to do His work? Is God's hand against us, punishing us for opposing His word? We need to wrestle with that question. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for these truths from your word. We are amazed just to see how all these themes fit together in the book of Acts and going back to uh, what took place in the life of Christ himself and even going back to 
things that we see from the Old Testament, we see your hand upon your people as they faithfully serve you. We see your hand opposed to those who would seek to thwart your word, and we see the foolishness of that. Lord, in our day-to-day lives, when we're faced with temptation, we're not convinced that your word is true, and so we give in and we sin. When we see an opportunity to share the truth with someone around us, sometimes we're afraid because we're not convinced that your word has power and that your arm has strength to uphold us in the task. Lord, forgive us for yielding to temptation instead of drawing closer to you. Forgive us for being ashamed of your word instead of faithfully proclaiming it. Help us to have confidence in the task that you have set before us. Lord, help us to have eyes of faith and expectation that even some from our own church, whether those that are in this room now or those who will be added to our assembly later, might be sent out to serve you on the mission field in another place, might be raised up to serve you uh, in leading this church down the road. Most importantly, that they would be faithful, all of us together, in doing the mission that you have set before us. We praise you for how you will work in these ways. In Christ's name, amen.